Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Okay, welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians, some that you may know, some that you may not. I'm your host, Cindy House. a delight to be with you. Uh, I am coming at you from Somerville, Massachusetts. In fact, this is the first week I start started my new job at WERS, and it's awesome so far. Today was just day one, but I can just tell. It's going to be amazing. So anyways, uh, we are talking to Peter Mulvey today on Basic Folk, who just released a new album, and I'm going to detail a little bit about what we talked about, but first I want to thank our sponsors for Basic Folk. Basic Folk is supported by Lindsay Myers from LMNO Management. If you like the artists on Basic Folk, she thinks you'll also like the songwriting duo McDean at McDean Sings on Instagram or visit mcdean.co slash basicfolk. Peter Mulvey's new album is called There Is Another World. It just came out on February 15th. Peter was on his way to Folk Alliance, which is this really big folk music conference. Uh, this year it took place in Montreal and actually... I went up for one night with my friend Dietrich Strauss. Uh, we drove in my car all the way to Canada. It was wild. But anyways, um, Peter was on his way and he stopped by and recorded this interview with me. And we talked about, you know, everything, where he came from in Milwaukee, his very interesting parents and their passion for science and activism. Uh, also, his new album has to do with a lot of like really dramatic change that happened in Peter's life and it's pretty uh, similar situation to uh, a change that took place in my life and it was a very emotional time for me I gotta say when we were doing this interview because I just moved uh, from Pittsburgh to Massachusetts just left my job and was about to start a new job and was feeling like at the height of emotion but actually he started talking about um, this song on the record um, called The Fox. It's actually the opener. And the song really resonated with me um, and actually started like, I got really emotional in, in the interview and I'm gonna leave it in just cause I think it's like a pretty real cool moment between two people. And uh, you know, I, I, I also am like really emotional about Peter Mulvey and always have been. Um, so the fact that <laughs> it happened this has never happened to me before, like sobbing during an interview, but the fact that it happened with Peter Mulvey like kind of makes sense to me. So anyways, you have that to look forward to. Me, you know, losing it in an interview for the first time ever. 
But before we uh, listen to the interview, let's hear that song, The Fox. This is from Peter's new album, There Is Another World. We'll check this out and then get to our conversation with Peter Mulvey on Basic Folk. I was afraid the fox had moved on. Last night's storm After last night's storm Her fresh tracks Her fresh tracks In the snow Welcome to. Uh, I'm trying to find. A, I'm trying to think of a good name for the studio. Mm-hmm. I was thinking of the Quaker Studio, because it used to be a Quaker meeting house. That's perfect. Okay, welcome to Quaker Studio. Thank you. So glad that you're doing this. You're the inaugural guest here on Basic Folk in Somerville. So let's get into it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, so you grew up in Milwaukee. I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Can you describe what part of town you grew up in and what that was like? Sure. Um, I grew up on the northwest side of town. Um, Milwaukee, like a lot of the post-industrial cities of the Midwest, is hyper-segregated. Something like 97% of the black population of Wisconsin lives in a little three-by-three-mile square area in Milwaukee. And that's—I grew up just within that. So, like, I was— I was the white kid all of my days in grade school and in the neighborhood. So, do you feel like that had like a huge effect on you, or you're oh, just yes. like, oh, this is just life? No, I, I, of course, when you're a kid, you're like, oh, well, this is just life. But I think it has made me kind of a mutant in America, you know, because, uh, because I just grew up in a somewhat rare situation. I mean, and um, my parents you know, would have been um, sort of 60s liberal hippie types without the drugs. You Mm. know, like they met in what was then British Honduras, what today is Belize, volunteering as teachers. They were active with the Catholic Church, although none of us are Catholics anymore. And so one of the issues of the day, you know, the late 60s, early 70s was integration. So they they wanted us to live in a diverse neighborhood. Wow. And so that was the, an intentional choice. Oh, God, yeah. You know, that was their choice about how we would grow up. And yeah. yeah. You know what? It's so funny because I've always felt this like connection to you. Like I feel like kinship towards you in reading about your parents and how you describe them as like hippies without the drugs, you know? So it kind of resonated with me as well. And I'm interested to know 
um, more about your family. So your dad was in social work, I assume. He's now retired. Yes, he is yes. retired. Um, he went and got a paper route about three, four years ago. Oh, my God. Because he, he needed something to do. <laughs> yeah. Does yeah. he still work it? He still works paper, it. So your dad's a paper boy now. He is. In <laughs> fairness, he, he's the guy who picks up the bundles of paper, the local liberal rag, uh, the Shepherd Express, it's called. And he you know picks up the bundles in his Prius and drops them off oh at the di- distribution stations. That's yes. so great. Um <laughs> So uh, he eventually went into social work, but he also went to seminarian school yeah. before that and wondering how much you know about his experience there. Yes. My father was going to be a Catholic priest. His older sister was a nun. And uh, I am awfully glad my father didn't become a Catholic priest because I don't think I'd be here. You wouldn't exist. I don't think I would exist. <laughs> Probably not. Uh, and the story goes that he was he was home on break you know like from the semesters at the seminary Mm -hmm. and he was racing with some other kids in his studebaker and he hit like a patch of rain on the road and rolled the car and this was like a big big no-no he was no one was hurt but they kicked him out of the seminary they asked him to reconsider his calling Wow. I know. That was super traumatic for him. Like, he felt rejected. But also, like, how Catholic? I know, right? Oh, dangerous well, yeah. young man, right? <laughs> Get him out of here. <laughs> He's James Dean. He's one of, you know. <laughs> and so that was hard on my dad. And then he went to a Jesuit university, got himself a degree, and then signed up for the military, served in post-war Korea as a chaplain's assistant. Uh, he was there when Kennedy was killed, 63. And then... Wait, and... In Texas? No, in in Korea. Oh, in Korea. Yeah, yeah. And then... um, That must have been quite an experience for him. Yeah, I would imagine, you know. The the thing I know about it is that they had his platoon march around so they could film them for a movie. Mm -hmm. And then he took my mom to see that movie when they were dating. And, you know... That's a move. Yeah. Like, <laughs> hey, by the way, I'm in this movie. and But he didn't tell her because he was going to spring it on her, and she hated it. Oh, <laughs> she no. hated the movie, and I believe he just kind of like kept that on the DL then. Oh, man, that's It just funny. became a story for later. <laughs> um, and your parents met, you said, in Belize yeah. uh, as missionaries. Yeah. Um, so d- did your mom end up going into teaching after that? No. She, was a, she studied journalism, and she ran a community newspaper, and then, you know— I'm one of four boys. They had four sons, and all of us went to college. So when the tuition started piling up, uh, my mom got a job um, as editing the Alverno Today. Alverno College is a women's college in Milwaukee. And so she got a sort of a straight job that actually made her money in her field. And then she retired out of that. Mostly what she did was raise us and be a community organizer and activist. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that's that maybe is where you got... Oh, hell yeah. Your fuel for that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she ran like the literacy tutoring program at the library, the farmer's market, um, the Bayview Historical Society. She's, it's interesting. My father, sort of a minor league civic saint. My mother is much more, you know, let's go in there and kick ass and take names. You know, Mm -hmm. like we had a county supervisor named Scott Walker. And Scott. The Scott Walker. The Scott Walker, the guy who became governor and broke the teachers unions and all that. And my mother and he have despised each other for years. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Like that's something. Yeah. So she's got that going for I'm her. I'm so proud of her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Me too. Uh, so what kind of music was in your house growing up? Let's see. It would have been, you know, collections of LPs. It would have been Beethoven, all nine symphonies. Uh, Simon and Garfunkel, Bridge Over Troubled Water. 
um, greatest hits of the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Summer in the City, going all the way up to, like, American Woman by the Guess Who. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was it. And then, um, oh, also they had the William Shatner spoken word album that came out in the 70s. I know. But I have no memory of listening to it. It's just later. Like the one where he does Mr. Tambourine Man? I think so. <laughs> I think that one. And so, like, later I went back to their house and I noticed that. And I thought, you know, how did I miss this? I lived in this house for a decade and a half. Like, how did I miss that the William Shatner album was in here? Oh, that's so crazy. Your parents sound really interesting. They're cool people. They're really, I mean, they're still alive. They got their wits about them. And we are still friends, so... That's lovely. Yeah, that's a good thing. So you had one older brother. Mm -hmm. Was he bringing music into the house at all for you? Sure. I was just remembering this. He got that Queen record, Play the Game, and a brand new pair of black leather roller skates with red polyurethane wheels. He got that for Christmas one year. So another one bites the dust. <laughs> Wait, the roller skates are a reference to a record or the actual roller skates? No, he, he got okay. actual roller. Yeah, he got, yeah. He, he got Queen's Play the Game. And roller skates, and I have this distinct memory of like of that. And my first album that I convinced my parents to buy for me was Kenny Rogers' Greatest Hits. Nice job. Because I had seen The Gambler <laughs> on The Muppet Show. You remember that song, The Gambler? Yeah, right. totally. And I was like, get me this, you know. Uh, it seems like, not to pivot a little bit, but it seems like The Muppet Show was kind of a big deal for you. Yeah, yeah, it, it comes up a lot. Yeah. Well, it, it was a big deal. The Muppet Show was great. Yeah. It was this little, like, haven. It was very insurrectionist and, and sort of counterculture in a sort of soft, fluffy way. Yeah. It, I, I think that's what kids got drawn into. There was a, a story I was reading where you decided to be a performer because of The Muppet, the Muppet Show. Show yeah. yeah, Victor Borga. What I remember, my experience of it is I'm a little kid watching The Muppet Show. I'm all excited to see The Muppet Show. And then this severe gentleman stalks on stage in a tuxedo. And He's I, like 70-ish? Um, yeah. Yeah. At the time. And I'm, I felt betrayed. I thought, oh, my God, they're going to play my, you know, that stuffy music. Because I, I wasn't that into Beethoven and piano concertos. My mother was. They're going to play this adult music, but he was Victor Borga. And so, like, he was a comedian, and he did this whole trill up the piano keyboard and kept going when he ran out of keys on the right side, kept his hands going, and hurled himself off the piano bench and into the orchestra pit and onto Animal's drum kit. And I, like, I was like, Mom, get me a stage. And, and um, what she got from me was, and this is true, I got into an all-roller skate production of Oklahoma. That, <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It took place. Was at that a, your first onstage performance? Yes. Okay. I, I skated counterclockwise. I was maybe eight or nine years old, holding a sign that said, Poor Judd could slop hogs with the best of them. That was my debut on stage. And then you kind of, I hate this phrase, but like got the acting bug. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was in, I was in drama in high school. I went to Marquette University to study theater. And honestly, I'm still in the field of theater. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, not to get too woo-woo, but, you know, we all have a persona on stage. And my persona is very, very close to who I actually am. Mm -hmm. But it's a persona, you know, and you have to invest yourself in the present moment and bring that to life. That's what acting is. I mean, you're saying, in acting, you're saying the same thing you said last night. You know, mm -hmm. the exact same words in the exact same order, but you're supposed to bring it to life. 
And, you know, in what I do to stand on stage and play a show, I do have sort of set pieces that I can speak in between the songs, but I prefer to vary that at least a little. And the same with the songs. I prefer to improvise my way through them because it's all about just trying to be present in a, in a given moment. Like, that's what I've devoted my whole damn life to. <laughs> mm-hmm. Definitely, yeah. You labeled your family as street Catholics? <laughs> yeah, I think that's fair to say. You know, um, by that I mean there are some wonderful positive things that run through the heritage of the Catholic Church, liberation theology, care for the poor, frankly, progressive politics. And that part of it we have embraced. And we embraced it firmly enough that one by one we all left the church. My mother first. My mother left the church before any of us because she was a community activist. And there's nothing that pisses off a patriarchal priest more than an uppity woman Mm. doing things. So she, like, you know, kind of ran headlong into the bad graces of two, three arrogant, controlling men who happened to have a position, quote, of power. And finally, she just said, well, I'm done with this, you know. And my father followed her out just a few years later. Like, I remember he took us to church another couple of years. And then he was like, no, this, this is a chauvinist organization. I don't need this anymore. Mm. In fact, I mean, they, it took him a long time to get the hint. They were actually, they went to a sermon once. They had a thing. They had a group going up called the CFM, Christian Family Movement. And all that really meant was that they and their friends would read, like, Gail Sheehy's passages and get together and gripe about how tough it is to raise kids and work jobs. And one of the groups, uh, one of the families was a Jewish family. And the sermon, a couple of weeks after this became known in their parish, the sermon was on, like, communism and unhealthy forces within the community. And, like, partway through, my mom whispered to my dad, I think they're talking about us like specifically yes like like so they left that parish and you know eventually we all just crashed out of the church i was the last guy going to church in my family and that was only because i was dating a lady in the gospel choir a young lady she was 17 16 Mm -hmm. and i was 17 or 16 so i was the last person going to church but i am i've been done with that organization now i've been out of the catholic church for 30 years and um, it's been an eye-opener, you know, uh, the past 30 years. Here's the way that it has settled with me. Let us say that there was an Italian company that sold vacuum cleaners, and they were headquartered in Rome in Italy. Mm-hmm. And they happened to have an unusually high amount of pedophiles among their vacuum cleaner salesmen. And every time one of these pedophiles got in trouble, they would just transfer him to a different office in the United States and sort of cover up for it. And if it got really bad, they would just transfer him back to Italy. We would be extraditing these vacuum cleaner salesmen. We, the prosecutors in the United States, would burn that company to the ground. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're, not, we're not doing that at nearly the rate of incineration that we ought to be doing with the Catholic Church. Do you find yourself having a spiritual connection? Oh, God, yeah. What's that like? Well... You know, I was raised religiously. I've spent a lifetime in the arts. And there is a, there's a Picasso quote that comes to mind, which is, um, art blows the dust off of ordinary life. So does spirituality. Um, I've, I've also 
I've been meditating fairly regularly. I, I like to call it persistently half-acidly <laughs> for, um, for 25 years now. And I'm interested in science. And I don't think science and spirituality are particularly conflicting forces. I've hung out with a lot of scientists. I've read a lot of books on science. You know, there was a Big Bang. There was a singularity. There were some atoms, a whole bunch of atoms. And then they turned into this huge cloud of gas. And then those turned into stars. The stars lived and died, coughed out heavy elements. Those elements turned into planets. And then some of those elements became alive on this planet. We know this for, like, nothing I'm saying here is anything but a blunt fact. Mm -hmm. Those elements became alive and became more and more complex over a few billion years. And now some of those elements are two human beings, Cindy Howes and Peter Mulvey, who are talking. The universe is talking to itself in a studio in Somerville. That's wild. Right. And yeah. you can say it in one minute and you haven't said anything remotely woo-woo. All those things are just facts. Mm -hmm. I mean, if that doesn't make you want to open up to a more spiritual experience, I don't know what would. You know, like that's that's all you need. So um, spiritual, but not religious. I wanted to talk to you about being an ally in the modern age. Um, so I recently took a vacation to Mexico and I yeah. went to the Riviera Maya and this town called Coba where they have Mayan ruins. They have a huge temple that people can actually climb. And we had a very good tour guide who was telling us all about the Mayan people and I kind of made this connection with Mayan culture and modern feminism. So like back in 2012, I don't know if you remember, there was this hysteria that the world was going to end that the oh, Mayans had predicted in right. December, like on a specific date in December of 2012. But it was not the end of the world, but the end of a cycle that they predicted. And it seems like we're in the new cycle. The new cycle seems pretty woke, pretty feminine, like intersectionality is a huge thing people are talking about. Social justice, people checking their privilege, social media doing its thing for better or for worse. So I don't know if you can get on the same wavelength as I am with this idea of being in this like new cycle that the Mayan people predicted. And also, to add to that, I don't know if you listened to the Aeneas Basic Folk podcast did, yeah. where we were freaking out about third and fourth wave feminism. Right. Fourth wave feminism started right around 2012, and it has everything to do with intersectionality and social justice and using social media. Comment. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Um, the calendar I don't know anything about. It's like every – so I looked into it a little bit more before you got here so I could – I don't – I'm not an expert, but the cycles, they seem to come every 5,000 years. Hmm. Well, it sounds to me like a myth, and our myths are useful. Like our myths help us frame what is pretty hard to understand, which is our, our very existence. But as far as feminism goes, I tend to always return to that saying, feminism is the radical notion that women are people. Uh, I forget who said it. My God, Peter, science is facts and women are equal? Come on. Well, women are... <laughs> here, here, here it is. If you address someone as a person, you address them as an equal. And if you think about all the injustice that we've had, you know, right there in our Constitution, 
it's a racist, sexist document because it says women can't vote. It says black people are three-fifths of a person. So again, like, I mean, think about that. Three-fifths of a person. People are people. I feel Where like... Where do you even come up with that math? Um, I think they came up with... It was a negotiated settlement. It was essentially the slave states wanted all of their slaves, the population of slaves, to count in the census so that they'd have more Congress people. And the non-slave states, you know, in the North, as I understand it, they wanted, they, they didn't want that. They didn't want more political power adhering to the, and so they, they're back and forth and, oh, here's our, here's our solution. We will declare these people three-fifths of a person for the purpose of population. For the purpose of voting, we'll say zero. You know, women will say zero. On and on. I, yeah, you just got to take people as they are. Now, in my realm, most of what that means is listening and thinking mm. and trying to hear people. Uh, why don't I give you examples? Like, there's two ladies in a, a duo who play cello and violin and sing. They're called Sister Strings, and they're from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where I'm from. Mm -hmm. And I use them as my band sometimes. And I called, we were, I was doing one of those bicycle tours that I do. And so I wrote to Shanti and I said, um, hey, you know, I have this idea. Maybe you guys could be part of this whole tour. You, you, you'd rent a car. I'd pay for the car. And you would drive and meet us. So, you know, the drives would be short because we're only going 100 miles a day or 70 miles a day. It's all we can bike. But you could be part of the tour. And we'd go from Milwaukee up to Minneapolis. And I hit send. And then because she and I are friends and because I've been listening for years... I hit send and then went, oh, and I immediately hit reply and said, by the way, it is not lost on me that I am asking you to drive while black in rural Wisconsin. So I just figured it's on me to say that. Mm. And she wrote back and said, LOL, I don't like to operate out of fear. Thanks for noticing. Let's do this. Like, you can't get to that place where you even think to engage. Like, it never occurs to me. I don't worry about getting pulled over in rural Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. No one is going to see me in a car and go, well, that guy doesn't belong here, you know, but it could well happen. And that's Shanti essentially what you mean with driving while black. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, exactly. Here, I mean, here's another thing that happened long, two, three years ago. I was playing a show in Alaska and um, I really... I had a great show, and I kind of levitated a room full of people. It was a bar, you know, so when you came off stage, you were sort of going through the crowd. Mm -hmm. And I got two encores, and I was going back on for the second encore, and a woman grabbed my ass. <laughs> like a woman goosed me. And uh, women will probably be much more familiar with this. I'm not entirely sure who she was or, like, which person, but I'm pretty sure, like, just from proximity, there's that vague, well, it must have been this person because that's where I was in this moment. Mm -hmm. But I'm not used to figuring stuff like that out because that generally doesn't happen to men, you know? Right. You're not on your guard. Right. I get the male privilege of walking through the world knowing that that's not going to happen to me very often. Right. Like, and, sh like, you know, I'll walk down the street thinking, like, should I make eye contact with this guy? Right. And I don't know that unless I'm listening to you mm -hmm. and and saying, well... What's Cindy's experience like and how is it different than mine and how is it a genuine human experience? How shall I take it seriously? I thought about this woman grabbing my ass for two or three days afterwards. Something stuck with me and it was how I felt. I, I felt a little like, well, that's not cool. 
Mm-hmm. I didn't feel fear. I didn't feel demeaned. Did you feel violated? Not particularly. You know why? I think. But let's go with a hypothetical. Imagine that women were seven foot four on average, mm-hmm. and like two hundred and seventy pounds of of like NBA player muscle. Like that was the general build of a woman, way stronger than me and bigger than me, and that they owned everything, all the job opportunities, and most of the judges and lawyers and cops were women. Now, how would it feel? Right? It would feel completely different.、Mm-hmm. Now that vast thought experiment into a sci-fi parallel universe. Is is for me the very beginning? I can walk 15 feet down that road and look out on a thousand mile stretch of road that separates my experience from the experience of women. Does that make? Yes. Like I don't、It's, understand. You, you can just begin to imagine. Yes. All right. Let's talk about the guitar. What about the guitar? So your style is pretty unique. Can you describe what you do on the guitar? Sure.、Um, I use a lot of alternate tunings.、Um, I tune the thing very, very low. And if I could name the three people who were fairly influential, I would say Leo Kottke,、uh, Michael Hedges, and Ani DeFranco would be the three guitar players who most influenced me. Probably, if I'm being honest in approach and sound, it's probably Ani. Because、uh, Leo Kottke and Michael Hedges are both sort of guitar yayas, you know, like that's their thing. <laughs> like、uh, Hedges was a composer, and Leo is like a badass guitar player who half of his set is instrumental. And I wanted to be that, but I just didn't have that kind of chops, you know. But Ani, her entire guitar sound is to get this huge, full spectrum percussive thing going, so that she delivers a song. Like it's all about the guitar in service to the song itself,、mm-hmm. and so that's my deal, and it's been my deal all along. If if anything, did you, did you start playing and you just like detuned your guitar? And... No, that didn't happen until I was in my twenties, and I I I shot a tendon. I just kind of blew up a tendon. I had a little cyst on a the middle finger of my left hand, and there was some surgery to remove it, and. The finger got a little weaker, so I tuned the whole guitar down one whole step, and it became for lower. Your yeah, finger, for my finger. But then I also discovered that I'm a baritone, and so all my songs made more、How、sense. Serendipitous. Oh yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. We stumble into becoming ourselves. So that was it, you know. And that's been my baritone voice with pretty much a baritone guitar. Yeah. So yeah, your singing also really gets me. You've got like a couple of pretty interesting singing voices. I found this quote from you. I thought was really good. I'm in the group of people who thinks Bob Dylan is a fantastic singer because he has phrasing and he has commitment and he has the ability to get in there and light up the words, which is something that you say you go for. Yeah, I try to. Yeah. Can you describe what you mean and how exactly you accomplish that? Well, the best example of it is probably Ella Fitzgerald,、um, in that you just believe her. When she sings, if she's singing about sorrow, you believe she's experiencing it. But she, she's not a particularly relevant example to what I do because she also has an instrument that is just physically astonishing. Like、mm-hmm. it's so pure, it's so beautiful. She has such range and such control. 
I'm kind of much more like Bob Dylan or Hoagy Carmichael. Um, I, I'm not a particularly skilled singer, uh, and I'm certainly not possessed of a voice with facility and fluidity and and a big range, you know. Mm -hmm. So I have to rely on on uh, just commitment, yeah, and being present in the moment. Mm -hmm. So Ireland, you were an exchange student in 1989. Yes. You would busk on Grafton Street. Yes, I was, was a busker. Yeah, what was that scene like for you? Oh, it was fantastic. I mean, I was mostly coming into a, a space that the other guys were holding it down. There was a whole group of guys. Uh, this is the Sea and Fisherman's Blues by the Waterboys had come out. Uh -huh. And they were, you know, they just sort of established street musicians would get together and sing, you know, Fisherman's Blues and and this is, uh, you know. Um, we just had uh, Mark Dignam on. Oh, yeah. Uh, and he was part of that scene maybe around the same time oh and was God. describing it that there would be like 20 singers on the street just yeah. and, and then hundreds of people ringing he, around watching. He and I may have stood in one of the 20 group groups of 20. That's hilarious. It's amazing. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I knew that you had a really strong connection to Ireland, but did not know about that particular time in your life. Yeah, it was beautiful. How do you think that experience helped shape your musicality? There's an immediacy to being on the street, you know, like there's no stage, there's no proscenium, nobody paid to get in there because there is no in there, you know. And so people only respond because they really want to. You know, uh, years uh, just a few years later, I was in Boston uh, for the first time, and I was busking down in the subway. And the ultimate compliment someone could pay you, you know, the way you knew that they were getting something out of what you were doing, was that they'd skip a train. Like, they'd sit there. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Like, I bet that felt amazing. Yes. Time and attention. Did you see that movie, Lady Bird? Yes. At the end where she, she says, I know how to pay attention and her guidance counselor says, well, isn't that what love is? Mm. I've never heard it put that way, but I think it's true. Like, that's... Love is paying attention. Love is paying attention. And, like, that's what I try to do as a performer, and I've gotten that from audiences. That's the gold standard to me. And so I still like busking. I don't get to do it much because I'm, you know, on airplanes and cars and all that stuff. But every year I play at the Fort Atkinson Farmer's Market in Fort Atkinson, Wisconsin, because a friend of mine runs it. And I love that gig because I go set up a little amp and I, and I sit down and they got a bunch of chairs and like eight chairs that are tiny for little people and little children and <laughs> <laughs> little humans. <laughs> And, you know, people are walking their dogs, and you're not the guy. You're just, you know, you're just at the edge of the market, and the farmers have brought their food, and the people are coming to buy the food. And there's something to that that's sort of much more important than to me than Carnegie Hall, which is good because I have never played Carnegie Hall <laughs> <laughs> and probably never will. I'm just going back to Ireland for one more question. So you were in Ireland at first in 1989 and then you started touring the country in the mid 90s and you did pretty well there what kind of connection did you feel with ireland at first and how has your relationship with the place evolved i love ireland i i feel like this is true of europe in general is that they have more they make more room for art in there and culture 
I feel like so many American problems can be summed up with, well, yeah, that'd be nice, but Puritans, you know, <laughs> like, right? Like, we, oh, what are you, why are you studying arts? Why would you read a poem? You know, you gotta, you gotta increase the GDP. Like, that's a very American sentiment. The Kennedy Center notwithstanding, I'm, you know, the National mm -hmm. Endowment for the Arts, those are wonderful things, but the fact that we have to fight for them, that we have to fight for Sesame Street is astonishing. So uh, that's true of Ireland. I mean, my, my metaphor for it is that the Louvre is the size of the Pentagon, <laughs> and the Louvre is full of art, and the yeah. Pentagon is not. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, but Ireland itself is also like a super literary culture. And I love that. And it's a super colloquial and a super funny culture, probably because it's oppressed. This is another pet theory. Like the funny, among the funniest Europeans are Polish people because they've been rolled over from the East and from the West for centuries, you know. Among the funniest Europeans are... a coping are, mechanism. Yes. Yeah. Among the funniest people in Europe are the Irish because they were, frankly, colonized and beat the hell down. And I think you've, you've hit on it. It's a coping mechanism. All right, so you moved to Boston, started playing in the subway. Um, you also met an important collaborator, Goody. Oh, David Goodrich. Yes, um, I remember the day we met. Uh, I was working a day job at a place called the Music Emporium, wonderful guitar shop. What I remember was Goody uh, walked in, this guy walked in, I didn't know him, and he said, hey, can I try that old uh, national guitar? And I took it down off the wall and handed it to him, and he played uh, Dark Was the Night, Cold Was the Ground by Blind Willie Johnson, and it really moved me, and I thought, who is this guy? And then we just started playing music together. He was in a big rock band in town called um, Groovasaurus, and they were wonderful. And what time period was this? This would have been the early 90s. Okay. And by about 95, 96, uh, he was producing records for me, and he was my sideman on the road all the way to about the turn of the millennium. We just traveled and traveled and traveled together. And he and I have played, we've done tours in England, in Ireland, and in um, uh, Alaska, all over the continental United States. It's through me that he met Chris Smither, and he still tours with Smithers. He just produced He just Smithers produced record. Smithers' new record. Yeah. yeah, he's produced like the last five or six. Yeah. Um, yeah, speaking of Chris Smither, you were also involved in this really interesting apprentice-type thing with Chris Smither, who is this super famous, established musician, yourself, and Jeffrey Foucault, yeah. who at the time, um, in the like early 2000s, was the up-and-comer. So you guys were all on the same management roster, and it seemed like there was like a mentoring thing going on? Yeah, the management roster was the official thing. We were all managed by Carol Young of Young Hunter Management. But the mentoring thing just happened because Smithers an incredible dude, uh, you know. Um, I opened a show for him in 1994 at the Old Vienna Coffee House, and he just took me aside. He said, you know, I really like what you did, and I really like you. And then, like... <laughs> We started, I know, like, super direct guy. Thank you, Jesus. I know, right? It was, and he, but he brought me to California for my first tour, Ireland, like all of the territories that I built an audience, a lot of it was getting a foot in the door through him. And he did that for Folk Halt. He just brought um, the suitcase junket. He just brought Matt Lorenz uh, to England and Ireland with him and continued this thing. And I've learned so much from him. For example, I've brought 
you know, Anna Tibble and Jeffrey Martin and Carsey Blanton and John Stotts and all these people who are, are a half a generation younger than me. I brought them along, mm-hmm. you know. Um, Anais Mitchell opened a tour for me in Alaska, you know, and then went on to become considerably more famous <laughs> than I am. Which, that happened to Chris. Like, the list of people that have opened for Chris Smither, well, Joni Mitchell... Tom Waits, Jackson Brown, they all opened for Chris and then went on to become considerably more famous than he is. Wow. But, you you know, you you take what's coming to you and you, if you have any sense at all, you're grateful. That's what I learned from that dude. So you were living in Milwaukee for a couple of decades? Yeah. yeah. I lived there from I, – I grew up there, moved out here in the early 90s, moved back in 96, and then I moved out here okay. in uh, 2018. All right. Um, so let's talk about that a little bit. So you experienced some giant life changes and upheavals, which led to you to living in a small, empty house in Fort Atkins, Wisconsin, where you, you were there in the dead of winter. Yeah. Um, you must have experienced, I think we maybe FaceTimed one time and you're like, look at where I live. And yes. I was like, where the hell are you? <laughs> um, so you must have experienced... Um, such stillness out there and it seems like it was kind of maybe the biggest reset you've ever done oh yeah yes my life utterly changed and i i tend not to talk about what came before because it isn't solely my story to tell but i for the first time in a long time was living alone and i was in a place that didn't have wi-fi and uh, i kept my phone mostly turned off uh and it was. It was an incredible... I, I, you know, I had almost no possessions, just what would fit up in a bedroom and in the kitchen. And it was a friend's house. Their mom had passed away, and they were prepping the house to be shown. So, like, I had to be able to put everything away. Like, they wanted it to look as though no one lived there. And so... Were they showing the house while you were living? I, they would just let, warn me, and I would leave. Oh. And so it was an empty house. I kind of felt like a ghost, you know? Uh, and I'm, and also, and this, when you go through, I think of the Anton Chekhov quote, any fool can handle a crisis. It's the day-to-day living that grinds you down. A crisis is actually kind of exhilarating. You know, I, like, you know what to do. I unplugged from the internet. I walked at least an hour every day of January, of December and January, like at least an hour, even if it was five below, I would get out and walk for an hour. Some days, one day I walked... I hope you had a good pair of gloves. I did. Great. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, one day I walked 10, 12 miles, you know, in the woods, along the river, walk, read. I had friends, and I have friends in that town, and so I had community, but I also had solitude. And that's where all the songs for the new record came out of. Mm. Um, it seems like your relationship to nature was very important during that time. Very much so. Yeah, and again, when you're sort of, when you're pared down to your essential self, there was a fox that kept hanging out in the backyard, and she took on just prominence in my, I guess, in my life, you know? Like, that was important, this fox, you know? And there was an an owl uh, that a friend of mine had told me about, and I would go looking for her, and then I saw her and her mate, you know? 
don't know. I'm crying. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed this. Are you, have I? Can I interview you for a moment? <laughs> um, I just love the fox story so much. It's like, what it's, is it about it? I don't know. I think it's um. This has never happened before, <laughs> ever in my life. <laughs> so sorry. No, do not be sorry. Yeah, I just think it's because um, I've felt that before. Yeah. And looking for any sense of grounding. Yes. Right. I mean, that whole lyric I was just an observation. Like, I'd seen the fox, then there was a snowstorm, I didn't see her, and I... I was just noting what had happened. I was afraid the fox had moved on. But after last night's storm, her fresh tracks in the snow. And I felt, I think the thing you're feeling now, of just like relief. Like, yeah. you know what? It's still there. Life is still there, even when you go through brutal change. Yeah. You know, and it sucks. <laughs> yeah. So bad to get to the point where you need You need the fox. Things, right, yeah. where you need something, <laughs> you know. Mm. emotionally yeah yeah I remember um when I was going through a similar situation thinking like I just need to get through this certain amount of time period and just sitting on my porch thinking like how am I going to do this there's like nothing going on there's nothing going on how is how is this how am I going to do this and I looked around at the um the neighbor's house next to mine and just saw all these bees and all these bugs just like doing all this stuff to the flowers. Yeah. And I thought there is so much going on. Yes. Yeah. And that was like a fox moment. Right. Here. I think you've put your finger on something. You've laid something bare here. We love poets. We love songwriters. We love artists. But we don't really. What we love is what they show us and it can be shown to us in other ways. Like, the whole world just goes on. Yeah. And... And you're, like, it's like your world is over. Right. But it's not. But it's not over. It just feels over. And the reason it feels over is because we convince ourselves that we are separate from the world somehow. And yeah. It's only from that position that we can say, oh, well... It's all over. Like, it's what, what would that even yeah. mean? Yeah, I think I think that you know, the bees and the fox are just physical reminders that yeah. you know it's just a cycle. Yes, yeah, we can we can use them as physical reminders. My favorite yeah. thing is that they themselves it's just a fox. Like <laughs> it was in my backyard because the yeah. neighbors had chickens. Really got any fresh <laughs> right, totally. <laughs> Right. And the, right. And the bees, you know, they're literally just shouldering their way into the flower because because, yeah. you know. Yeah. Wow. We went there. Yeah. I'm so glad. You all right? No. <laughs> yes. Good. I'm great. OK. Um, I read this interview where you were talking about your love of the poet E.E. E. Cummings. Yeah. Whose trademark was to write in all lowercase letters. And so you adopted that style. <laughs> I did. When you were young. High school, pretentious kid, yes. Right. And then years later, you found yourself having a hard time writing capital letters. Yeah. That's all true. And then, you, then the same is true for your unconventional guitar tuning. 
um, which you you know were first driven to, and then you came to realize you had to learn conventional tuning. Yeah. So I'm wondering, and I maybe already know the answer just based on our conversation, where that personality trait comes from, like bucking conventions and where else it might get you into trouble and where else it does the opposite. Oh, God. <laughs> I've just always been that guy, like since I was a little kid. I've always been that guy. I guess I've just, I mean, I was the kid, you know, sneaking into the library and reading books of Greek myth and books about the planets. You know, like nine years old, that was the deal. And it was, it sucked. (laughs) (laughs) It really sucked. You know. Like your life could have been so much easier if you just went along. Sure, yeah. I mean, among other things, you know, I don't know if these things are related, but I've had lifelong struggles with depression and anxiety. You know, the place that I grew up was violent. I suffered physical violence from just the neighborhood. I remember the first time being called a faggot on the playground. Like, why? Because I was a sensitive kid. I'm as heterosexual as your average heterosexual. But I was called that because it it gets lumped in, that sort of othering, you know. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, what else would I have been? Do you know? Like, I, I got really lucky. I, I think I got luckier than most white dudes. I mean, I walk around with that invisible shield of armor. But I also, I had that armor sort of taken from me a lot when I was little. And I think that's a helpful thing. I, I think it allows me to, it allows me not to just rest comfortably, mm. which is good. Because resting comfortably is half of what's wrong with us, you know? Yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> I agree that, uh, yeah, I subscribe to that, but also it's like, I just want to sit down. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Oh, you totally. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. So here's a couple more questions. Um, so your main income is touring and always has been. Yes. Um, and you say that you tend to break even on the albums. Yeah. Is that okay? So does that fact affect how you approach making a record? Like, do you feel more or less free when making decisions about the album? Are you just like, I'm just going to dial this in because I'm just breaking even? Yeah, no. Honestly, when you're making a record, money just goes out the window. You just don't care. You're like, what What will make this sound good? Mm. You know, and I've worked with great producers, you know, Goody and Chuck Prophet, Ani DeFranco, Todd Sikafus. And it's like, it's... It's sort of like theater, you know, well, the show must go on. Like, what, what do we need to do? You know, and so I'm lucky when it happens that a record turns out where we only need two or three musicians and it gets done really quick. That's great, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. But this last record, you know, we hired a lot of people and we I pay people good if I can. I pay them as good as I can. So, yeah, art is art. If I cared about money, I'd be doing something else. <laughs> Um, and I read that you feel pretty comfortable on stage, except, and this might not be true because this interview, he did this great interview in 2002, by the way, that was right on point. I read a lot of your interviews and I can point out which like are the best two. Um, so you were talking about how you feel comfortable on stage, except when you go back and listen to the recording and you're like, this guy is talking too much. Yes. Um, also, since it's your main source of income, that is maybe where it feels like actual work. So what is your relationship with performance, and do you feel empowered by performing? I do. I do. Yeah, it's a double-edged sword, right? I do feel empowered. 
Uh, I do get something out of it. You know, it's a healthier drug than a lot of drugs. And it is useful to other people, and that's worth remembering. Like, people come away from shows sometimes, and they say, you know, that, I, that was a rotten year, and that show or that record, you know, really helped me through it. That's great. But the last thing you want to be doing is um, performing for your friends, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, uh, and I don't know. I have a bunch of good friends. And I, my guess, if I had to guess, is that I give them a sort of straight, unperformed Peter Mulvey experience enough that they are friends of mine. Mm-hmm. And it's a balance between that and they're willing to put up with my occasional holding forth. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'm going to ask one more question, and I'm going to let you choose what you want to talk about. All um, right. National Youth Science Camp or Tin Pan Alley Jazz? National Youth Science Camp. Okay, um, so every year you perform at National Youth Science Camp in, camp in West Virginia, yes. which you mention quite a bit throughout your interviews that you do, but I want to know more about it. Um, you perform in a cave? Yes. Yes. The camp is a summer camp for the top two high school seniors in science from each state. So 100 kids, and then there's kids from Latin America, usually in Europe and Asia. Oh, how cool. Yeah, like so 130 kids. And I've been playing for 18 years. And the summer camp is a, it's put on by the National Youth Science Foundation. And they have, you know, a lot of science courses for these kids and networking and, you know, and lecturers coming in and talking about, physics and biology and but what they're really doing is socializing these kids and teaching them that they're not the only nerd in the world oh. you know all that stuff and doing ordinary camp stuff like rock climbing mountain biking and then midway through their experience at the camp they put them on these two yellow school buses uh-huh. and they march them uh, you know they drive them to this sort of remote part of um, Pocahontas County, West Virginia, and they walk them across this ridge and down into this swale by a river, and there's an opening under the roots of a tree, and one by one, they all go into this long tunnel that opens up after 100-some yards into this big underground cavern. Oh, that's so cool. So they get all the kids in there and the visiting lecturers and all the counselors, and then they turn on the lights, and I'm already there, and I play just a short little (laughs) concert for them. And I hang out with these kids, and... It's amazing. These kids are amazing. Every one of them is more intelligent than almost anyone you or I have ever met. But they're also, like, some of them are 15 and graduating high school. They don't know anything. (laughs) They're amazing. And they're not, you know. (laughs) And I get to hang out there. It, It One, it gives me hope for the future. And two, it has given me a really healthy respect for science. Um, How'd you get hooked up with this? Don White. Oh, Don White. I'm from Lynn. Yep. What can I say? People from Lynn just, just act talk that, that. Talk yeah, just that act way. that way. Yeah, yeah oh, totally. Yes, Don White. He so Christine Lavin originally played the gig. Uh, I'm going to guess in 1998, uh, and because some of the staff were fans, and then she didn't want to do it the next year because she didn't like caves, and so she recommended Don White. And he did it for a couple of years, and he called me up, and he gave me the gig. He was like, Mulvey, I think you, among all the artists that I know, would grok (laughs) how deep this gig is. And so I went and I did it. And I I called him back the next year, and I was like, Don, you can have your gig back if you want to do it this year. 
But if you give it to me again for a second year, I am never giving this big gig back to you. So <laughs> you, you decide. He was like, you do it, Mulvey. You know? And so it's 18 times now I've played down in that cave. Wow. It's the best. I love it. Yeah. And we're going to be fine. I met this girl from Arkansas. <laughs> and she was at the camp. And I said, how did you get here? And she said, well, in Arkansas, you know, they just send the winner of the science fair. I said, well, what was your science fair project? And she said, I designed a molecule that has a ratchet built into it. I mean, not mechanically, because you can't work mechanically on that scale. Magnetically, it has a ratchet. So it only is allowed to spin in the one direction, which is not quite perpetual motion. But man, does it suck heat out of the surrounding molecules. <laughs> right. You know, like 17-year-old girl is telling me this. And, I, and, I, and I, I'm all like, Wow, I made my guinea pigs drool at two in the afternoon when I rang a bell, you know? Like, <laughs> these kids are amazing. They're amazing. And they're open-hearted and open-minded. And they're standing on the shoulders of everyone that went before them, and they know it. And these kids are all so high speed. I mean, it kind of reminds me, every time I get scared, I like the Parkland kids, who are amazing. You know, and the way that when they came to prominence, the first thing they said was, we want to we want to make time for the Ferguson kids who came before us. Like the kids are so high speed. The kids are so great, which is great because yeah. I'd like to have a planet for yes. a long time. Agree. Peter, this has been so awesome. This has been really great. Thank you. Only one of us cried. <laughs> and that's pretty good. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, Cindy. Everything Peter Mulvey says is amazing, and I am so glad I got to sit down to talk to him for like over an hour about everything. Hope you enjoyed that. The new album from Peter Mulvey, There Is Another World, and I gotta say like, so that's the first time I mentioned earlier, that's the first time that's ever happened to me where I just like get so emotional during an interview that I start crying, and I don't think it could have happened with like anybody other than Peter. Like he is... He just like makes me feel very safe uh, emotionally, you know that that um, that I I could express myself like that. So thanks so much to Peter for for being such a good person, and his reaction was actually pretty great too. Anyways, let's take a moment to thank our sponsors for Basic Folk. Okay, Basic Folk is supported by Lindsay Myers from LMNO Management, who suggests that. If you like this podcast, you'd also like the band Tina and Her Pony. You can check them out on your preferred streaming platform or follow them at Tina and Her Pony on Facebook and Instagram. And thanks to WIUP in Indiana, Pennsylvania, which airs Basic Folk 2 p.m. Eastern every Saturday. You can listen on 90.1 if you're in the Indiana, PA area or at their website, WIUPFM.org. Thank you to Alex Stanton, who provides the music for Basic Folk, and also Laura McCarthy, our producer. I'm Cindy Howes, the host of Basic Folk. Thank you so much for checking out the podcast today. Subscribe and leave a comment about how much you love it. Tell your friends share on your social media, text your dad about it, uh, and we'll talk to you next week. All right, bye.